I interviewed Todd Lachlan, the Managing Director of JLL. We talked briefly about his international experience and then we dive into New Zealand's favourite topic, the one that we really get out of bed for. The only thing that governates New Zealand is more than the rugby. We talked about housing and particularly housing pricing and how our regulatory and demographic environments are going to impact house prices going forward. It's an excellent conversation, really enjoyed it and uh, particularly some of the stuff at the start where Todd talks about his international experience. Really interesting to get the insights from somebody who's been there, who knows that and has got his finger on the pulse. I hope you find something of value. I am here today with Todd Lachlan. Give us a quick uh, one minute, uh, your, your background, Todd, because not only do you run JLL, but you've, you've, you've had a long history in property. Not that long, you're, you're still very young. <laughs> Thanks, Damien. Um, yeah, Todd Lachlan, the managing director of the New Zealand business, so it's a, we're, oh, right. we're yeah, a global yeah. business, so I'm not quite there on the, on the global stage yet. Uh, I'm a Kiwi, uh, yeah. born in Hawke's Bay, the mighty Hawke's Bay. Yes. Uh, so... Real estate's been my career, I guess. I came out of my degree in Canterbury, then Lincoln, uh, and went straight into commercial real estate. So I started off in Wellington, did four four years there, and then bounced around between London, Mumbai, Beijing, back to Auckland. And you've been back in Auckland how long? Well, back to Auckland, then out again to Dubai, Abu Dhabi, (laughs) Jakarta, spent a bit of time in Singapore, and then back to Auckland. So back to Auckland for five years. So with a with a pedigree like that, you should be thinking about a career in the National Party. <laughs> we'll come. We'll come. Well, we'll, we'll come to come to national. Um, maybe we'll start with a very broad question. We perceive ourselves to to be obsessed with property, particularly residential property as an investment class. You've been around the world. You've seen other. Um, we the United Kingdom, obviously, but also other markets. Are we as obsessed with property relative to our peers? I, I think it's fair to say the markets that I've worked in, um, and, a, and a number of markets are, would say exactly the same thing. Yeah, the culture I think connects to real estate, you know, in, in most places. Yeah. So I mean, particularly the I guess the the, the more advanced Anglo economies. If you think of the Canada's, US, uh, the UK, Australia, us. Um, in places like Singapore, there really is an attachment to real estate. And I think there's a whole lot of social and political reasons for that, but just primarily a place to, to feel home and feel comfortable. And then obviously as an investment class, when you've got capital gains and those, particularly those Anglo markets of, of 5% plus, maybe compounded over over years, there's a there's a reason to, to think about housing and property as, a, as an investment choice, not just a place to live. Well, I think if you go to Europe, particularly Northern Europe, um, you know, other, other other larger economies, there's a different lens. Um, but why? I mean, I, is it is it that property is simply not that attractive, or or are there? Is it an opportunity cost? They've, the Germans and the French have better investment opportunities. Yeah, I think I think they've historically had large rental uh, um, investors who have built built to rent property, or government entities that have built large, um, or, or council entities that have built significant housing estates and have provided really good accommodation for people to to rent long term and you can in a number of cases and particularly in Germany and in Europe you can take a 5, 10, 15, 20 year lease. Why would you can hear a 99 year lease? Well 99 year lease is more of an ownership model 
So well, 99 years is longer than the Federal Republic of Germany has been around, for heaven's sake. Yeah, so 99 years is, is effectively an intergenerational ownership model. You know, at the, yeah. end of, at the end of that term, typically a department development will need to be knocked over and started again anyway. Uh, or if you do want to renew the lease, you go back in to the freeholder who would typically be a government or, or a local government entity or potentially some form of charity. So, so you, But in, in, in Singapore... My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that that's a highly regulated government-controlled market property in Singapore. It, it is, and I think that's one of the one of the interesting, I guess, case studies for us. And you know, there's a there's a conversation around around how that links to the thinking around Kiwi Belt and other types of, I guess, um, state or uh, non let's say non-private sector uh, offering. I mean, Singapore at the moment, seventy-eight percent of all its housing stock. Is uh, housing development board so effectively the now, the, 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 the state seventy eight percent of the housing stock in Singapore is state run. Well, state developed. So so who owns it? Well, eighty percent of that eighty percent. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm giving you sort of broad numbers here. Yeah. I'm not an academic, but would, has already been sold to individual Singaporeans, and in, in some cases sold again and sold again. And there's a whole lot of restrictions around. All oh, right, so it's not seventy eight. So seventy eight percent was developed by H2, a government H2B, agency. H to B, you're correct. But then individuals can buy it. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's where you start to link to the social policy around housing. So you say, well, if you are a young family and you and you're earning less than X a month or a year, house. well, we won't give you a house. You can get on the list for a house right. that will be significantly. Uh, and then you, there's a, there's a there's some form of contribution to that, and then you're you're basically in the in the housing market. So long as you continue to support the PPP, if you support the Workers Party, you go down the long way down the list. Is that the way it works? Well, they've yeah they've got a very strong political model that uh, <laughs> deliver, delivers a lot of continuity and certainty, Damien, and you would know more about that than me. <laughs> uh, so it is not the libertarian paradise, uh, mind you. They've got what seven or eight million people on a on a block of land. About the size of Chatham Islands, not much, not much bigger. I'm not than sure it's eight, but I think I think it's probably close. Yes, yeah, seven. Cool. Uh, it's yeah, a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and there's a lot of density. And I think, um, you know, they they have to make um, decisions around uh, density ratios and uh, public transport in a different context. You're not going to get right? your quarter acre slice of paradise in Singapore very cheaply, are you? No, no. And I think that sort of Kiwi dream, quarter acre dream, was uh, was passed us by in a lot of ways from affordability point of view because ultimately if you think about vertic- vertical versus horizontal and structure it's incredibly expensive to go to go out and we've well, let's, that. let's jump ahead to that because mm. um, we we have I can't remember who the author was now um, it was a but he the quarter acre slice of paradise is identified very much as a QEN to, to an extent an, an Australian dream but I, I don't think that's the case. I think that's a universal human dream. And you can see that when, when people migrate to New Zealand, the first thing they do, you know, people from uh, Singapore and, and, and um, um, Hong Kong and so forth, or China, they'll go to um, you know, Howick and they will buy a large section. It seems to be an innate human desire to own a chunk of land. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and I think no one's going to argue around the 
the demand or the want for that, particularly as you say, if you're immigrating from a location that has high density, I think it just comes down to the economics and the maths of it. If you yeah. if you have a, a rapidly growing population, and I think I think that's a reality for for us as a country. We've got we've 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 got. I mean, I've I've got four or five hectares of land. Mostly, it's just gorse and dilapidated fencing, but I do it because I can afford to. I mean, that's why I was I was late to here because I had to come in from the from the from uh, Waitaki where I live. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm not particularly wealthy, but to be able to own four or five hectares of land is is amazing. Absolutely, I, I think that piece no one's going to argue. I think if you if you list out people's wants, I mean, they're going to be infinite, right? And, and real estate just yeah. Yeah, sits within that. It, it really comes down to, I mean, and this is when you start to get into the conversation around. You know, how do you bring uh, young people into the housing market? How do you how do you provide housing as a, as an overall well being conversation? And I think you know you, you could argue um, the, the politics around it, but we have a we have a market that's probably failing a significant percentage of our of our population. Um, whether it's a rental market or whether it's a collective ownership market, whether it's a uh, owner, you know whether it's a freehold ownership market, we do, we, we we're not providing housing. At a scale that can um, that meets uh, you know meets the demand for what really is a social uh, so let's, let's requirement, isn't it? And that's the that's the challenge. Well, we we do have and we have had uh, a very strong social housing ethos, I guess, and that goes back to uh, Joseph Michael Michael Joseph Savage. We were so impressed with his ability to build a house as we. Gave him a statue in a park. Um, and it's really interesting just looking at the the extent of social housing. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to get too much into the, uh, into the history of it, but there was, um, in, the, in the policy prescription for the incoming government, which has just been removed from office, that Jacinda Ardern, she had a huge push on KiwiBuild. They were going to build 100,000 houses. She was basically going to reimagine the um, Joseph Savage legacy. And it didn't work. Why? What went... Well, did it go wrong? I mean, the, the, I guess the, the assumption is that it, it failed massively. They are going to build 100,000 and they built 5,500 or something. But... But what went wrong, and could could that have ever worked? Yeah, I think yeah. Primarily, the the thinking around it uh, to 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 build a government entity that delivers housing, you know, for the masses effectively, or right across the, the social and economic spectrum, that the private sector isn't able to do deliver on. I, I think the thinking around it was still pretty solid at a very high level. But when it came down to execution, if you were starting to put targets. Uh, and 100,000, you know, is a significant target um, around it, then you're always going to put yourself under pressure in terms of delivery because I think we all understand that the, the wheels of local government, central government, on all the planning around that and all the enablement of our of our all the different component pieces to, to delivering housing at scale, you know, move slowly. But how are you, but practically how are you going to do it? Because uh, at, at the moment we're building whatever it is, 24, Four or five thousand houses a year, or something. Um, if we, we're suddenly going to add another ten thousand, isn't 
all that's going to happen using economic speak is just going to crowd out the housing, the, the the private market. So if the government's building ten houses, that's ten less houses than uh, the private market is going to do. There, there was they weren't building capacity. Well, I, I think they would argue they were uh, because, and I think you know, the the private sector, as you've seen in the life cycle, you know, it, it, what inevitably goes through the booms and busts of. Right. You know, bank finance uh, demand from from the individual buyers, particularly off plan. When when the market's falling, no one wants to engage in an off plan conversation because they could buy it cheaper mm-hmm. tomorrow. And you, and then you've got all the resource constraints around dealing with a whole lot of smaller individual developers. When ultimately the you know when you're talking about that sort of affordable housing and large scale market, you need to have a balance sheet, you need to have scale, and you need to be able to go through a lot of iterations of innovation and to be able to deliver. Housing at scale now it may not be, or it's not going to be your quarter acre block. Mm. It needs to be in. in that's, like, that's interesting. It's kind yeah. of consistent with something that Stephen Joyce said because um, uh, uh, he made the point that with large scale infrastructure, it was the stop and start process that damaged capacity. And he said his part of his idea, particularly with the roads of national significance, was to have have and maintain a high level of capacity. So when the contractor finished one project, they moved on to the next. So you're saying that if the, st- if the state had effectively come in there and provided a base load or, 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 or maybe uh, picked up the slack, then, then the capacity, there's always more capacity in the system maybe than, than, than what the private market is taking up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you've got demand, no question. So, and a demand in particular geographical locations where the jobs are. So, yeah. you, you know, no one's saying that you need to. Well, then why are they building houses in Queenstown? There are no jobs in Queenstown. Well, this is all a bunch of wealthy people who go down the, there to buy houses. There are no jobs. There's plenty of jobs in Queenstown, and there's plenty building of houses for, for for wealthy people. Yeah, well, I think you know, as you know, as you rightly know, lifestyle is, a, is an industry. <laughs> Tourism is absolutely an industry, and you know, and, and a location. I think you're talking about a knowledge worker base there. And I know you're being a bit, uh, a bit <laughs> damn, but I think you're talking about a, a knowledge, <laughs> a knowledge worker down there that uh, you can absolutely operate from anywhere. And I think um, when you think about you know building, you know, I guess getting back to your point, building at, at scale. I, I the Stephen Joyce logic absolutely resonates with me because ultimately you need to be able to to if, if you're going out to the market, and, and I go back to the the housing board in Singapore's model, yes, like that that's been going for, you know, uh, depending on how you talk to, a lot, it's older than the country itself. So this is when they're part, part of the empire. But when they're well, yeah, that's right, part of the empire. You know, it's connected to, to Malaysia. You know, and, th- and and that was that was moving people from effectively slum areas into housing. So this is yeah. like a complete, uh, you know, step change in their life. So they're stepping from. Uh, that people were stepping into a, you know, their first home, but from from the streets effectively. So you're talking about that's the history behind it, and they're building up a balance sheet and a capability through the cycle to to build. So it doesn't matter whether the price is going up or down. There's always going to be another project coming, and the contractors can come through with the you know with a balance sheet to yep. continue to procure those all the services that that takes all the different pieces of the puzzle to build. And if you Think about how challenging that is for an individual to developer, smaller yes. developer, small medium sized developer, to, to to build up that capability, and they don't have the balance sheet. It becomes very very hard. So the very successful ones, the larger developers, have a massive advantage over the smaller guys. So, so so they they can continue to do well, and there's no one saying you can't. That there isn't enough demand for them. There is. 
Yeah, but on the other side of the coin, where you've got, um, I guess, that affordable market, uh, and, and you want you want to drive your well, I personally think you want to drive your ownership rates as high as you can, because if, if people own their property, then they're going to invest back in it, they'll look after it, they've got to provide a safe family environment, and they continue to curate wealth through through the generations. Then it, then they can continue to um, be part yes, a stronger part of, of of the economy. And if you're renting, it's it's challenging. I think often. Um, you, you, you these horror stories of people being asked to move out quickly and get out of their get out of their uh, owners, uh, you know, get out of the owners' property. Oh, you're just a big state lefty, aren't you, Tyler? I just think I just want a solution that works, Damien. That's so, my thinking. Well, let's let's. <laughs> and let's I want the market to help that. So, <laughs> so let's, let's talk about capacity. Um, uh, so, uh, some of the stuff. Uh, there's a couple of. There's been the government loves commissioning reports, and there's there's there's, there's a lot of them out there uh, and so but also the New Zealand Initiative which is an excellent uh, organisation which I'm and becoming an endless uh, shill for uh, they did a report relatively recently on, on housing affordability and a big part of their issue which is also picked up in some of the other government reports is all around supply what has been happening is that we have been attempting to mitigate Demand. So we've had a foreign buyer ban. We've had the bright lines test, and the but none of that really, none of that seems to be working, doesn't it? We we we're, we're not really doing anything to reduce demand, and if anything, um, uh, the recent surge in, in migrations is going to push demand up. So we're stuck in a situation where, and we'll talk a bit about demographics in a second, but let, let's talk about the supply constraints. We've got massive constraints, and in a Commerce Commission uh, report, uh, 2012, it's going back a few years now. They were saying, "All right, well, if you if you have a look at the market, um, you've got your designers and architects, you've got your builders uh, and building firms, and then you've got your consenting authorities and your councils." And the commission said essentially, you've got two massive blockages: the building and building firms and the consenting authorities. The designing and architects were a problem in the sense that they were very reluctant to embrace new um, uh, new materials. So if they're used to dealing with you know jib trademark, then they keep dealing with that. But let's talk a little bit about the building firms because one of the consistent themes that we hear is that our firms. The size of our building firms are too small. We have lots of small little boutiques and not enough flatter buildings. Yeah, I, I think we, we do struggle with with scale, don't we? And I think that um, a lot of the things that you said there, or most of the things I agree with. I mean, yeah. f- fundamentally, how are you? Go- if you look at the, the large builders in the US, the large builders in Australia, the large builders, and even some of those Asian markets that I've worked in, they build at absolute scale, and and they. They have the demand, you know, that they can forecast out ten, fifteen years in certain locations that they can, that they can then deliver all of the component pieces and innovate around the, the outcome and, and drive costs down and do the, the things that the customers want. But within that, I think a lot of the times we struggle is if you think around um, the councils and, and their, I guess, their vote, voter base. Yeah, they are inherently against. Densification inherently against more development because ultimately it's it's that NIMBY effect, right? So you do need, I think, and I think uh, Chris Luxon and others talk about this, and Chris Bishop talks about this. 
you need a push from the central government to say, like, right, we're going to incentivise you to, to zone more land, to develop more infrastructure, particularly vertical, uh, or to, to enable vertical development, so you can you can drive the, the density of, the, like, of a particular city and, and allow more development to happen. I think the Auckland Council did that with the industry plan pretty well. So mm-hmm. there's, I mean, that's, because that no one's talking about it, it's actually worked quite well. So you, okay. yeah, but you know, it's one of those situations, and it, it went through. There was a whole lot of argument around it, but ultimately, it delivers two and a half to three times more um, buildable area, land area. But they still, they still have the the <coughs> infrastructure con, uh, constraints. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, but, you know, you water care still got to upgrade the pipes. That's right, but but I don't think that's a entry plan issue. That that actually comes down to just a sheer. The, the growth of Auckland, I and mean, you've had others, other guests talk about this. Yeah, has almost been. One of the, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the world, by yes. by you know in terms of the delta, yeah. And, and so, how you keep up with that, particularly when I don't think we've got the right mechanism mechanism around private partnerships for infrastructure. So we haven't got the toll road model going very very well. You know we haven't allowed um, some of those big pension funds to invest in in our infrastructure and then and then collect collect a return over that over time. We're very much focused on trying to do it within. Within our own capability, yeah. and I think that we have to—I think we have to look at other other funding models for infrastructure, and, and that will be the next evolution, I think, in terms of how we how we deal with our growth because it's not stopping. But just coming back to that start of this, why? What is the factors? What is the? Because it's not happening by accident. I don't think it's happening by accident that we have lots of you know small builders and and not so many GJ gardeners relatively. That does appear to be changing. But what is it about our market, about the structure of our market, that means that you you do see such a big portion of the market relative to overseas firms dominated by, you know, sometimes just one-man bands? I think it comes down to scale, quite simply. So if you think of the size of our cities... Yeah. Uh, and, you, and you think of the size... We've only got one city which, you know, is comparable to... The, to a, a big city in Australasia, for example. Whereas, if you think about, I don't know, you, 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 broke, go, you, you broke so many hearts when you said that all the people in Wellington and Christchurch and Ekaterina. <laughs> yeah, well, Wellington, four hundred thousand people. Yeah, you know, I mean, and so you, inevitably, you two hundred and fifty of them employed by the state. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was 60. <laughs> 60 well, yeah, yeah. Well, we live in a post-truth world. <laughs> you make it up as you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no, I, I, look, I, don't, I, I think you know, there's plenty of examples um, of firms that are scaling, but I, again, I think that the highly cyclical nature of our market, and you, and you should come back to some of the other structural factors that drive that, Yeah. around uh, investment in single housing units, as an investment choice, as opposed to apartment complexes and and so forth, because you, yeah. you you have a look and you go down to places like Dannemora and so forth. I used to be in the gas industry, and and you would just see acre after acre of, it'd be unfair to call it cookie cutty, but but essentially what happened is that the council would open up some greenfields, and um, they'd sell off the sections, and then the builders would come in and they'd buy. So the big guys like Fletchers or Golden Homes, or whatever, would buy fifty or hundred units, and then they should go there and smash them out. Uh, but then there's the opportunity for the smaller guys to go and buy their little uh, their little units, and and you'd there was a real difference. You could tell a building that was built by one of the franchises and one that was built by a one or two man uh, guys. There, were, there was quite distinctive. But I actually think one of the other things that was 
one of my theories, is that if you're a, if you're a new migrant to New Zealand or anywhere, you, your English isn't great. You don't have an awful lot of connections. You may have had a relatively successful business career in you know Hong Kong, wherever you came from. Um, you, you arrive here with, with not very much other than a little bit of money and the capacity to work. Construction is brilliant. It's fantastic because nobody cares that your English isn't very bad. They only want to know is, you know, can you pay the bills when, when you water the stuff and, and they'll buy the product from you at the end. And so I think there's a natural, there's a, um, it, it kind of makes sense. And I actually think that that's an, op- that's, that's, it's been great because these people get in there and they and and they do stuff. And I actually think that to an extent that's that's possibly been been driving it. Um, but that's yeah, this is based on my anecdotal exposure to the market. Let's talk about one of the other big issues. And I I'm not too sure I believe any of this. It all seems so self-serving. But building supplies, there seems to be a huge argument in New Zealand that we have some form of a oligopoly on building supplies jib is the one that there was famously a jib shortage recently um and people were complaining they couldn't get competitive products then again the commerce commission uh, has made some dark comments about that they've even got some harebrained theory uh, that uh the rebate system somehow locks in existing uh suppliers and that designers and architects are lazy and will own and will will actually specify you know you need to put in a Renai hot water system as opposed to a uh in just a hot water system i mean is there any do we actually face a problem with building supplies is that is that a significant impact on housing prices well, I mean, it's an open and competitive market, so I don't think anyone's suggesting there's there's collusion. Um, there's no, collusion, no, but, no, yeah, slept, no or, but I, I I think it comes down to again, you, you linked it to you know a number of smaller firms and their ability to, to procure uh, and how they procure and how they specify it. And I'm, I, I've I, an interesting case study from yesterday. So I'm speaking to one of our uh, clients who's building a premium office building uh, in Wellington. Uh, for a private sector organisation, so not a government organisation, um, and they were talking about they had a um, LED light that they wanted to procure for um, five of the floors for that particular fit out, and he he looked at the quote and says six hundred and thirty dollars for that LED light. He thought that, yep. that feels phenomenally expensive. <laughs> Got onto the internet and googled it, found the product in the UK. From the wholesaler at seventy five pounds, so you know one hundred and fifty dollars, and say, "How do we get from one hundred and fifty to six hundred and thirty? Yeah. Well, I think that is a that probably in a nutshell is some of the conversations around when you're building bespoke architecture designed or even individual units. You've got the challenge of trying to get to that because if I'm only buying fifty or ten, or, or I've, I've got then how do how do I get through those layers of layers of, of margin and different because the individual um, seller in the UK doesn't want to deal with you. He can't. No, they, he, want, to, they want to deal with the He's got an authorised uh, dealer of that particular product, and they're saying, and it's specified for this, and, it, and, it, and it's a particular type that, yeah, it's, it's got a unique uh, technology in it. That, so it therefore, I mean, that comes it's back crazy, to isn't it? 400%. Um, uh, and we should be in that. Uh, we should be looking at importing them. Yeah, well, 300%, right? So I think that, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to use that as, a, as an example to, to illustrate the point. So, you know, you, you, 
the and another example would be we've got another client um, again that builds warehousing at scale yeah. in Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah. Now you know I don't think anyone argue that Sydney or Melbourne has got a cheaper labour force than we have. No. So and, and Melbourne, um, say for example, Melbourne flatland. Let's just use Hamilton as an example. They were saying that we can build warehousing to a high specification for logistic firm in Melbourne that. It's just used $1,000 a square meter. I think that number's probably a little bit out of date now with inflation, but this is my conversation I was having two yep. years ago. In New Zealand, it's two. <laughs> now, why is that? Well, there's a whole... I mean, there's probably a 1,000 reasons for it, but it all links to um, the ability to build at scale and having that capability. So that same Melbourne firm is not losing money at 1,000 square metre. They're obviously profitable. They've got similar uh, costs of probably higher labour costs, but they, they've obviously got scale, they've innovated, they've been able to d- deliver that, you know, that product numerous times before and they've, they've got a full supply chain and they've, and they've been able to do all those things smarter and more efficiently. And this is in quicker time as well. So you've only got a cost and you've got a time cost challenge. So, but, but as we get in Auckland, as we get yep. better at doing that and there's, there's more demand for it and there's obviously more potentially... Um, you know, Australian construction firms and others come in. I do see that that delta reducing, but we haven't got any choice, right? We've got to go through that that learning curve and that process. So my view is that you know, open market ability to bring um, making it attractive for other firms to come, and I think that comes down to that conversation around people and competency, which we talked about. You've got an Australian federal government and state governments that are facing the same immigration um, that we're facing. So this like record levels of, of immigration that will almost certainly continue to keep coming. You've got climate, you've got geopolitical challenges, you've got the you know, lifestyle, all the reasons that we'll, you'd want to come here, and the world being smaller because of you know, the technology that we've got. Yep. So the, the, the demand's going to keep coming. People are going to keep coming, I'm sure of it. And with that... We'll but, we still, but, but we still... We're still going to... People are going to keep coming, you're right, but they're going to keep coming into the same environment where... Because at some point we're going to get into uh, prices, but but they they're going to be coming into the same bottleneck regulatory structure that, in effect, it's almost illegal to build a cheap home in New Zealand. You've got the building code, you've got the Resource Management Act, you've got all of these restrictions, and that's one of the other things that the Commerce Commission said. They said that the the building code is difficult to understand. But I wrote a column making fun of the building act because you know I read it and it says it's, you, you have to allow so many units of lux into the living quarters or whatever and I thought what what the hell um, and and you've got to and then you've got to go through the consenting process which is which is a nightmare uh, and then you've in a, in a lot of situations you've got to arrange for the council to to sort out the infrastructure mm. so all of these people are coming but they're coming into an environment where they the actual regulatory and commercial infrastructure around house construction isn't working at anywhere near the level of our friends in Australia. And as you said, the Australians are dealing with, with higher labour costs. So that, um, and we continue to have uh, land supply constraint issues, although do we? I mean, you were talking about the, 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 the unitary plan um, I mean, we 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 must be able to if we could sort out the infrastructure, 
there must be the capacity to, to vastly increase the density of Auckland. But if we do that, we're not going to be doing that with Fletcher Construction and GJ Gardner, are we? We're going to be dealing with that with the one- and two-man builders because you this is going to be taking one house on half an acre and making it into six houses. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, Damien. But yeah. <laughs> the, we, the, the entry plan delivers the, the building square meterage. Yes. You know, so the ability to build um, around shopping malls, for example, on close to tr- transport links, train yep. stations, exists right now. Um, but the economics of it doesn't stack up because of the construction costs. So you, know, you, you go, you, you a little bit go back to that sort of same conversation around how do you how do you make that work? Well, it will work for the private sector when when the when the purchasers are prepared to pay the price, um, and you know there's there's demand strong enough to be able to to make it work, and, and it's already happened. I mean, you've seen a lot of densification in, in across Auckland, and you you continue to see that. But where you know what, what I my challenge with this whole thing is. If, if you're going to move down a path of densification, you've mm-hmm. got to get people. You've got to be. You've got to get people on board with that conversation, at a central government level and at a local government level, and ultimately say, look, how do you want to? How do you want to live? Yeah, if you if you're in Auckland, it's going to be a more dense city with more with more public transport, less vehicle centric um, environment because we can't continue to go horizontally. We can't continue to go further out because it just doesn't work from a from some, at so many levels, right? I mean, you talk about sustainability, you talk about sort of productivity, time in the car, time in the, time in the train. You've got to densify. So that that means the type of people that will be living in your cities will be a different demographic. And, and we've got so much, op- we've got so many opportunities for people to, to immigrate within the country to go to a different lifestyle and a different conversation, you know, a different mindset. That that's that exists. Mighty Hawks Bay, for example. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, New Zealand has no shortage of land. We've got no shortage of consented land. It's just that people will, will choose to locate close to the jobs and close to their family and close to where the opportunities are. Yeah. So, and every city goes through it. Sydney's gone through it. Tokyo's gone through it. London's gone through it. Paris how do you mean, how do you mean it goes through it? So Going through you're, the densification, uh, you, you become more vertical than horizontal. You start to build around, you build different product types. Uh, you know, different real estate product types around yeah. around nodes of transport. You start taking away car car parks. You start taking. You start charging for people to come and back and Don't forth. Take down the downtown car park. <laughs> I'm so angry if Wayne Brown does that. But 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 it's interesting. You're right because I came to New Zealand eighty six, eighty seven, something like that from Australia, and the contrast now. Just in the um, the the number of people who live in the city, you know, the senior apartments, you got the viaduct, it's massive, and that's happened in what thirty years. It's been a really a a, a really significant um, change. Um, uh, before we go and talk about demographics, let's talk about constraints because one of the things that kicked this off, we're having a conversation, and and you you're explaining a really interesting idea. Um, based on your understanding of of the construction market in Australia and how that's likely to impact on our own labour force, so just talk us through what you see happening and the challenges that we face. Well, there's a lot of parallels between Australia and New Zealand, and I think yeah, you know, obviously they've got the state and the federal system, which yep. a- adds another layer, but they they're facing the same demand as we're seeing, um, and obviously being you know Sydney and Melbourne being bigger cities, they're going to attract some of the, the, the larger investment, higher value jobs. So those those locations will grow quicker probably than than, than we will. So 
they've got the same challenge around housing affordability that we have. At a federal level, they've said, we want to build an additional 1.2 million houses over the next 10 years. This is over and above what the private sector is already talking, what will already deliver. So this is, this is their Kiwi build? This is their Kiwi build. This is, this this is, is their Aussie build, and I'm sure it's not branded like that. I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Be, um, what is the... This, this is a specific policy of the new government? This is the specific policy of the new government, and, it, and it, it's, it's, it's aspirational, and it's incentivising the state governments to build you know, uh, additional housing. Uh, and so how are they going to do that? I mean, this is primarily, from what I understand, and I've, I've read a little bit about it, but there's not too much out there at the moment on it, uh, to, to deliver rental accommodation. So I don't think they're necessarily going down the, the Kiwi Build or the Development Housing Board where they're actually building build for sale accommodation, which that can only yeah. be sold to a certain demographic. But maybe that's part of their conversation as well. But my thinking was really around additional resources that you would need to deliver that delta because you know 1.2 million um, additional state houses. And, you know this is the federal balance sheet. So you know every contractor and every every developer in town uh, is one we wanted to work with them for obvious reasons. Um, is going there's going to need another five hundred thousand uh, tradies to deliver that over the next ten additional tradies. So you know, and I say uh, the broad construction industry is probably not just guys with you know hammers. It's yeah, their full supply chain from architects, plumbers, right, plumbers. You, you name the yeah. exactly. So um, and so where, where are those people going to come from? So and I and I think that's that doesn't even talk about you know locations like South East, East Queensland, which are talking about twenty new hospitals. Um, 30 new universities and schools. and I'm, I'm misquoting the numbers, but they're, they're significant numbers yeah. that are coming from a construction industry that's going to have to scale up massively. So yeah. my, I guess at a, at a macro level, I'm thinking people, training, competency of our own people, bringing in a, you know expatriates at senior levels maybe to help us with that sort of things to, to build out this infrastructure, which... You know, we we're, we're already in a massive deficit. On we're going to we really are going to be challenged. So we, from an education point of view, from a training point of view, from all those sorts of things, we really need to think about that because we're going to be competing so this, with the Aussies this, again. This is over. This is a ten-year program. Ten-year program. Right. So that's they're, they're saying essentially they're going to do the equivalent of a Kiwi build every year in Australia, hundred thousand houses. And the assumption, your assumption, is that they are going to be coming here, hoovering up our tradespeople. Yeah, they're going to be going everywhere to find people, aren't they? And yep. I don't think it's any different to what we've already seen in other industries, like the mining industries and others, because you're going to be offering people significantly more, more money and opportunities. So, but it's but it, it's, that's going to be at a, at a different step up, right? Because at the moment there's already there's already a big gap between Australia and New Zealand, just even for just um, ignoring all of the skills thing. But then if the Australians say, right, we're gonna we're gonna Slap on a Kiwi build every year into our market over and above their current construction. That's going to drive the prices of tradespeople even higher than the the normal twenty to thirty percent difference you can expect to see. Then who's going to be left to build houses in New Zealand? Yeah, we. we you any good with a hammer? Yeah, I don't want to catastrophize it because I, I think we all understand that um, New Zealand store is a relatively small economy, and so is Australia. You know, versus um, yeah. plenty of other places in the world uh, with plenty of talented people that I think would still like to move here. Yeah, people are very happy living here. There's, there's always going to be a um, a baseline. I think what we've at the margins, we've got to be realistic around who we're competing with, and and that, and, and also I think 
if you think about the most recent cycle, which has been a pretty challenging cycle, I mean, you know, four or five percent changes in the OCR pretty quickly, interest rate yeah. costs. This has not been. This has been a very very challenging market for any developer, big or small, uh, any construction company, big or small. You know, a lot of companies in that space. And so you go back to Stephen Joyce's point, right? How do you how do you continue to live, to deliver through the cycle? And I think there's a market failure that you know, for for mass housing for you know affordable housing, you need to have something a bit more constant than that. And then I think a, a strategy around how you bring the people with you and how you train those people, joined up thinking around it all, that is. And I think there's a there's a conversation to be had around community housing providers. Ewe particularly, particularly the larger Ewe around how they deliver, um, and I, they've got the access to land, they've got balance sheet, they've got they can build the capability and they have a lot of capability already. There's, 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 it's got to be, it's not there's not just one silver bullet, it never is right. There's yeah. got to be multiple stakeholders that are prepared to invest in the space, and they're looking at different models, right? So you've got. Uh, just a straight rent model, maybe a long term, you know, built to rent model. We're talking about, maybe but who, but who, but who's doing the building, right? This, this, where the people coming is, from? <laughs> yeah, this, 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 this is the problem because we've got a tertiary, um, the training sector, thanks to you know Michael Wood, um, and his amalgamation of all of the different training facilities, it's complete disaster. Um, I, I don't, I actually know whether the numbers have gone down, but. That that sector seems to be dysfunctional. The apprenticeship regime doesn't seem to be working as effectively as, as it had, has in the past. Um, uh, if we're importing people with skills, then they're going to be people with skills in a different market with different building techniques, right? So at the minimum, there's going to be a lag, uh, and then we've got the we've got the competitive pressures of our labour being sucked out into the, uh, across the ditch. And at no point do I see anywhere that the incoming government is actually serious about, okay, what are we going to do to get rid of these these regulatory blocks? One of the, you know, this whole push on localism, um, and one of the issues is that, and to be fair, Chris Bishop has spoken about this, the disconnect between the incentive of local governments mm. and, the, and, and the incentive of central governments. So central governments want, wants local councils to build stuff. Local councils don't really want to build stuff because they've got to pay for the infrastructure for right. the damn things. Yep. So they have an incentive to, to drag their, their heels. So maybe there is, yeah, may, maybe there might be some shift there. I'm not... Yeah, I, I, I think the central government does need to look at all of the re- regulation around building, and, and I'm sure it, it will do, and, and is looking at that. And I, I 100% agree with you that, that there has to be an incentive from the central government to the local government for them to want to continue to zone more land, build more infrastructure, because they just haven't got the balance sheets for it. And ultimately, you've got a finite um, ratepayer uh, market who's sitting there with you know, an existing house, and they, they can only afford to pay so much. So... But the central government gets a benefit for, with all of this immigration. They get increased tax receipts, GST. They've got, you know, obviously they're, they're building capability, creating job opportunities, hopefully lifting well. But all those things are benefit sit with the central government. I mean, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about, yep. uh, Damien, just to give you a bit of a comparison from the states, and this is anecdotal, but um, is that is in large states there, um, th- there's a lot of competition to to uh, yeah. 
for the dollar, the, let's call that the house building dollar. And my sister was um, in Texas for seven years, bought a property, I think yeah. I told you the story, yeah. for $1.3 million US dollars when she arrived and sold it for seven years later, $1.3 million US dollars. So there was no... She actually went backwards. Absolutely. So th- I, I, and I think the thinking around that is why? I mean, we've got... So, so all those things you talked about, drive and inherent uh, uh, increase in capital value in our market. The states have got... They've zoned the land. They've got a very competitive market. They're prepared to, to deal with a little bit of um, fallout because maybe the regulations aren't tighter and some, some builders won't, won't deliver to the quality, but they'll let the market decide that. So people won't buy off a particular builder because they're not de- delivering a great product rather than trying to regulate your way through to a great outcome. And I think that's my, you know, in terms of letting the market decide, if you start to take some of the regulation away and you, and you allow the market to function, then they'll deliver the supply at a price point that ultimately will be able to... That's really uh, interesting because yeah. the concern we have in New Zealand is that we, there, there is none of that competitive pressure. Well, not enough of it, I think you'd argue. I mean, it's absolutely a competitive market out there. But you, you No, but in terms of the of the building regulations and the building code, right? So you've sorry, got one yeah. building code around the country and you have to use that in Invercargill as you do in Sorry, yes. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about asset prices. Mm. So there has been an explosion of um, asset pricing. The Reserve Bank... Um, I'm not typically a fan of the Reserve Bank, um, but they were complaining, ironically, that house prices rose 25% between 20 and 21. Um, They didn't say why it had gone up by that uh, degree, but the reason it's generally conceded is that house prices went up was because the Reserve Bank gutted interest rates. Uh, And so the the standard theory is that um, as interest rates fall, people are able to borrow more, uh, and that drives up asset price inflation. I want to run something past you. I have a theory. I have lots of theories, to be honest. <laughs> but this is, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> this, this is one of my favourite ones. Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> construction is really difficult in New Zealand for all of the reasons that we've spoken Talks about. about the, we've seen in recent years an actual explosion in the level of uh, Consents are up, construction's up, right? And that, in some sense, it makes sense because house prices, is, you know, prices are going up, the supply matches. But I wonder whether the, you know, you've got the bright line test, you've got the healthy home test, you've got all this rubbish that the state is imposing, um, the new Resource Management Act, although it hadn't really kicked in the last couple of years, all of these things that the state is making housing more expensive doesn't matter because as interest rates have been going down, asset prices have been going up in the age-old uh, um, relationship. And as a result, people builders can still make money. But now we're in a different environment. Now interest rates are going up. Asset prices are going down, which means that builders are getting less for the assets that they build. Is that going to create a problem? We've already seen some builders come unstuck. Do we have a systemic problem in that we've hidden the negative effects of our regulatory environment by seeing house prices increase? If they start to come down, are we going to have a a really even nastier supply crunch? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I tend to look at that COVID period 
is almost an anomaly because you had so many yes. things that were going on there that were unusual. I mean, in terms of the normal cycle, commercial property cycle, residential property cycle, COVID hit, we were, we were, we were turning. We are actually about to go through a bit of a downswing or a flattening out period. COVID hit and we obviously had a massive fiscal impulse around all the um, wage subsidy and all the, all the money that went to households and, and to businesses, and we had um, a monetary stimulus, which we've never seen, and we probably never see again, because I think everyone thought that the world was going to go to hell in the handbasket and we had to sort, do something to sort it. So that that last two or three years, I, I think, I don't want to say you can discount it, but that we're, we're still coming through what has been the biggest boom uh, in house, well, asset prices and house prices and, and construction and, and trading activity that we've probably ever see, and we're just working through that. But I would sort of step back and go, well, thirty years, fifty years, uh, you know, what are the things that we need to do as we look forward to be able to deliver on all the things that we talked about? And I, I, I think it's a combination of central government working closely with, with with local government to ensure the incentives are right. We zone more land. We uh, we are a bit more uh, less restrictive on regulation. We're sensible about all of that, and we allow the market to really function. And we and and the market will it will, it will deliver. But we've also got to step in and we'll, you know, with an equivalent of something like a Kiwi Build and Yakangu or have have are doing that to an extent where we've got we're delivering housing at mass like the Singaporeans have. So how, how is the kangaroo model? Um, I know she. Better to answer the question, which is probably wise. How does the kangaroo model differ from the Kiwi build one? I don't think it's actually materially different. They just haven't got a target around it. They still have they still have a build to sell product, so they they're still buying off the they they have been buying off the private sector and building themselves, and they will sell into a a demographic that is you know whatever their criteria is is eligible for that particular product. I don't know if they have any restrictions around how long they have to hold it for. Like in Singapore, if you buy off the uh, HDB, you've got to hold it for five years minimum. You can't yes. speculate on that, and you've got. And then you, when you sell it, you can only sell it to someone else who's eligible. So they they right. effectively keep that unit in, in in the pool. In the pool, they don't allow it to flick out into the open market. So uh, I'm not suggesting we go that that route, but there's got to be some more joined up thinking around it because ultimately, what you've got right now is, by any metric, a very expensive average medium house price. You've got a you've got a uh, an ownership class that ultimately is benefiting from that, and that obviously drives the politics. But it doesn't help us. See, I I go in a completely different direction. I would I take the building code and I throw it in the bin, and uh, I take most of the regulations and say waste of time. I I'd almost get rid of the consenting process, and and, and I'd say that the the only regulation is if you sell a property, you, there must be an insurance policy by somebody who's who's good for the money. Um, to provide a bit of discipline and also to get the ratepayers off the hook for consenting legal buildings or whatever the next crisis is down the road. I think, look at the look back at the conversations we've been talking about, the things that are standing in the way of construction um, is they're almost all state-driven. So one of the reasons why we didn't have density in, in Auckland is you, you couldn't. There were rules around it. Uh, and... I accept that some of what the Commerce Commission is saying is that you know there does appear to be some collusion is too strong a word, but but existing vested interests that makes that that's a real impediment to new products coming in. But I think 
Um, and that's also a function of the fact that we're a small market at the bottom of the world, right? It's mm. Things are just going to cost more. Sure. But I think if if the government just says, you know what, you know, we, resource, resource Management Act needs to be scaled back massively, the idea that you need consent from your neighbours to build a porch, I mean, just stop it. Just the whole lot, just go in the bin. Uh, and I, the the one area where I think there does need to be, as you described, as joined in thinking, is is on infrastructure. Right? There's no. This this is one of David Seymour's objections to the um, intensification. Uh, is that yeah, it's great to build up to three stories and all the rest of it, but there's there's. You, know, you don't have the power, you don't have the sewage, you don't have the water. Um, uh, there does seem to be, there does seem to be some constraints, which possibly could be controlled with private public partnership. But those are natural monopolies. But you see, I would I'd go in an entirely different direction, and I certainly wouldn't be having the equivalent of the Singaporean boards. But um, which way do you think our new government's going to go? Well, I mean, I. I yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm not a favour of throwing the rule book completely out. I, I think there's a, there's a whole lot of logic around um, you know our existing planning and zoning regimes. I, where I see the change is is probably at the margins. I, I I think the building act and all those things. I would like to be a lot more liberal. I'd like us to yeah. be able to can, to bring in all the different products. Yeah, ultimately, the, let that market decide whether the particular consumer wants to buy that. If it's been consented, if it's been approved in Australia or in other big large markets. You know, let's no, that's just, a good point. Let's just go. Let's go through, you know, and, and allow yeah. that to happen. And and inevitably, I mean, we have information in our fingertips. But we've all got access, right, to pricing. So, you know, we've, we don't. Have, we can get pretty pretty rapidly um, smart around how we procure and bring in products. So I, I, I'm happy with with that way of thinking. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to when you when you think about you know what make, what makes great cities and you know, no city in the world would throw the planning regulations out. I mean, you have to have some a form of placemaking, but you also have to be able to um, allow the planning regulations to, to, to deliver you um, opportunities to, to gentrify and bring in. Um, yeah. and, and Auckland started to do that. We're doing that. I mean, big cities in the world will do that. I think there has to be some form of incentive to be able to uh, allow housing and other product types to come into the, to, to, to the city that isn't just about uh, who can pay the most because it, it just doesn't work at a social fabric level. And I, I this point, you and I have got some <laughs> different different political views on it, Damien. But I, it's right. not it's not around political. It's, it's just around thinking and what actually will work. And I, um, you know, I come back to um, you know, you, you talked about Kiwi Build, and I, I think the principles around it, and, and they actually still exist within ducked away in the in the, in the website of, of King Euro. Yeah. They, they they still they still have what would it be equivalent of. That it it's just doesn't have the politics and the target and, and the media heat as, as, as it previously did. Probably, yeah, they've been succeeding by stealth. Which yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Yeah, well, I think that, I, and I think with 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 good good positive intentions, I you know, I, I, we can't continue to, to lock our kids and our grandkids out of this out of this housing market. Um, uh, no, I um, I agree. It is uh, it is potentially a massive problem, and and it's it's more tricky as well because. Um, one of the other things that's been happening is the, the demographic shift. Mm. So the reduction in household size from something like 4.2 to, I think, 1.7 or something ridiculous. Um, no, that's an exaggeration. Um, um, uh, where am I? The end of World War Two, average housing size was 4.2. In 2018, it was 2.6 and projected to fall 2.4 by, by 2038, which is not that far away. 
Uh, and so what's been happening is that you've been having mum and dads with, you know, three or four kids, uh, and now you've got mum and dad with, you know, I've only got one, um, uh, and lots of people living on their own. Uh, people are living older, so you've got the empty nesters and lots of going into retirement homes until they're much older. So there is actually a massive change in the, in the type of housing that we need. Uh, and so we are going to need a lot of um, a lot of construction. Um, is residential after all that? Is residential still a good investment? I mean, prices are pretty high. If you implemented everything that you talked about, I think residential would be less of an exciting investment because you'd have a lot more supply. Yeah, you you'd would. Have, you'd have uh, a lot more choice. Uh, you'd probably have a bit more chaos out there, but uh, I think. Uh, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't have that. Uh, you wouldn't have the same capital gain. So if you think of our housing market, you know, to, to the point around you know whether it's a good investment or not, if you've got restrictions on planning, you've got a, a, a really challenged uh, construction market, you've got um, uh, you've got no capital gains tax and all the other things that talk about, I know there's this bright line there, but then it, what it does is it drives people to invest on the capital gain primarily and the yields, yes. and, and I mean 2 or 3% yield on a, on a house right now. Yeah. No one in their right mind would do that unless they know there's going to be a capital gain. So I think some of those things that you talk about, like freeing things up and we talk about, will actually create a lot more competition and will, will drive down the incentives to people to invest in housing. And ultimately that is probably a good Which thing. Which politically is a problem though. Yes. Because if you, like me and so many other people, made a lot of money of doing nothing other than buying property, we are very resistant to anything that would reduce the value of that. So if, if property, if housing was to become more affordable, the government in charge at the time would be eviscerated. So they say they want housing affordability, but politically they can't, they're stuck. Uh, it's, it's going to be a gradual shift. I think over time, if you start to see that capital gain moderate, uh, and you're also allowing the kids and the grandkids and the next generations to, to enter a market and you know, have a strong level of well-being, health, fitness, everything that comes with owning a house, all those things. You, you, I think you could you can uh, do both. I, I, it's not going to be click your fingers and change overnight stuff because if it did, I agree, the politics wouldn't work. So the best investment would be a upmarket inner-city apartment because you've got your boomers, they're empty, <laughs> they've got a bit of cash, they don't want to be stuck in traffic. No, no, I, I think... Um, Do you have any, any, any of those on your books? <laughs> <laughs> Housing for me, uh, yeah, I, I think, is less about investment. Um, uh, I understand the logic around it, and I've certainly been involved in it myself, but um, for me, I think you're far better to go and commercial, you know, invest in a commercial... <laughs> <laughs> I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> Todd, Todd's got a deal for you. <laughs> um, all right, we're coming up. Is it a way to end it? I don't know. Yeah, sure. I, think yeah, I think people well and truly switched off by now. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting the number of people who get to the end of these things. Um, yeah, you can, least, you the can, patience of it. Yeah, yeah. you can. Yeah. Um, people last about five minutes and then some drop off. But um, 
But then the very there's a surprising uh, number. My wife is not amongst them, but the one, no, can't um, imagine mine being. <laughs> All my kids for that matter. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Todd, um, it's been an excellent conversation. Thank you so much for for giving me uh, an hour of your time, and uh, I hope people have found something useful. Thanks, Damien. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.